Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Michael Green of Logica. Michael's got a fascinating thesis on how passive investing is going to cause the market to melt up and then crash. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well, Tobias. How about yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, just give us a, a, a brief background, your, your background in brief, if you would, please. Uh, brief background, I've been involved with markets now for embarrassingly uh, closing in on 30 years. Um, uh, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business as an undergrad. Flirted with the idea of getting a PhD, uh, ultimately decided that was a terrible idea, went into management consulting for a firm called Bain and & Company, uh, and then left with a couple of senior guys from Bain to become uh, a principal at a uh, small startup that ultimately grew into a large consulting firm called the Parthenon Group, was just recently acquired by Ernst & Young. Um, developed a expertise in valuation for corporate uh, business units as part of my consulting. Um, and in the early 1990s, there was far less familiarity with the tools of Excel and there was far less diffusion of the capabilities in terms of financial modeling into the corporate sector. Uh, myself and a group of guys uh, built a company with a uh, corporate valuation tool that was designed for corporate finance departments. Uh, that actually caught the attention of Mitch Julis of Canyon Partners. He asked us if we could link it to the public equity databases. That in turn led to an additional business unit going after the asset manager world. Uh, I spearheaded that. That ultimately led to the sale of that business in 1999, which is when I transitioned to the buy side. Um, chose to go to a small, long-only shop up in Boston that was focused on small cap value. Because of my focus on valuation, I had done kind of a survey of the world, recognized that there'd been this huge valuation dispersion that had occurred between growth and value, um, similar to the conversations we're having today. The difference is back then, um, the value sector had become absolutely cheap. So we were looking at home builders trading at less than half of book value. We were looking at banks. Um, regional banks all over the, the United States, they were trading well below book value, uh, auto parts companies trading at three times earnings, et cetera. And so, you know, my attraction was to the value side of the equation, um, took advantage of that, had a, had a wonderful experience from 2000 to 2003 uh, with that firm, then got called down to New York to manage mutual funds for a firm called Royce & Associates, which is the largest small cap specialist. Um, second only to fidelity and size for actively managed small cap funds. Went through a period of intense growth there. We went from 19 billion in assets to about $55 billion in assets. Um, an incredible learning experience. I still think that uh, Chuck Royce is probably the single greatest individual stock picker I've ever encountered. Really? Um, I have to come back to that. Yeah, I know. He's an astonishingly talented crew. Really, really amazing crew there. Um, and then Mitch Julis and Josh Friedman at Canyon Partners came back to me, and they had repeatedly tried to get me to join them in Los Angeles. They finally, in 2006, came back and said, is it us or is it L.A.? Um, and as a San Francisco native, uh, it's impossible to enjoy spending significant quantities of time down in Los Angeles. I know you can't imagine that. Um, I've lived in both. 
If you've lived in both, well, then you know Northern California is much better. But uh, it's um, a little bit less of a beach environment, but uh, also not not quite as hot. Um, and so I just I, I hated Los Angeles. My wife doesn't like to drive, et cetera. And so I, I told Mitch and Josh, well, it's it's LA. And I said that's great because we want you to open the New York office. Um, and so I joined Canyon Partners in March 2006. Stayed through the end of the year in 2013. Um, and then was approached by uh, the CIO at Soros at the time, a guy by the name of Scott Besson, who asked me if I would be interested in, in joining Soros. The answer to that was no. And he then said, well, you've been an entrepreneur in the past. Would you like to run your own firm? Um, and seated me with a firm that was called Ice Farm Capital. Unfortunately, we had a number of challenges at Ice Farm Capital. In particular, we had a lawsuit that was maliciously filed against us. Uh, asserting that I had stolen all of my investment ideas and that I was engaged in, you know, outright fraud. Um, ended up winning the lawsuit but lost the war. So won the battle, lost the war. Uh, you, it's impossible to raise capital. As an asset manager, if somebody has a, particularly as a startup asset manager, if there's a lawsuit that's been filed against you. Um, and then, unfortunately, the CIO at Soros left right after we'd won the lawsuit. And so uh, Soros fired all their external managers that Scott had brought in. Um, and uh, that led to a period of transition during which I did a lot of this research and, and built a lot of this analysis. And I was fortunate that uh, Peter Thiel, who I'd met when I was uh, launching Ice Farm, um, gave me the opportunity to come in and manage a piece of his internal capital. Um, and that's what I did until November of this last year when I left to go join Logica and launch the Logica Absolute Return Fund. That's another uh, Santa Monica based uh, firm you could easily have transitioned to uh, to Los Angeles at that time my, my, my wife my life would have been much better from a commute standpoint if I had just accepted the idea of Los Angeles um, but uh, I continue to fight it to this day so honestly the flight from San Francisco to Los Angeles is probably shorter than some of the commutes in Los Angeles so that's probably not a bad trade-off it's even better for me actually because I live in Marin County and so I actually just shoot over to the Oakland airport right. that's even faster yeah you also have some phenomenal interviews on Real Vision, which is uh, which I should have pointed out in the intro. Yeah, no, I, I so I, I regularly appear on Real Vision both, um, I, on both now sides. that I'm yeah, well now that I'm out from behind a compliance firewall, I can appear as an interviewer. Um, so I had about a three year stretch where I wasn't able to do that. Interviewee. Um, I, I interviewee. I'm sorry. I, I appear as an interviewer in part. Um, I, I, I love that process because it gives me access to people and it gives me the excuse to have them sit in a focused conversation for an hour like this that, as you know, is very difficult to get. I'm sure this is part of the advantage that right. you, you generate from your podcast as well. Um, and so I have conversations with everyone ranging from politicians to other fund managers to political figures, and it's it's been a phenomenal resource for me. And I think it's probably the finest uh, uh, source of, of financial information for those who are really actually interested in, in how the markets work. Your series with Josh Wolf, I think you've done three now? Three or four, but yeah, I mean, Josh is such an intellect. He's just an extraordinarily motivated and talented individual who happens to be in the venture capital space. Um, like me, you know, started down the path of being a scientist and then he got sucked into the dynamics of being a, an investor. He just chose to do it in, a, in, in, in probably a more interesting and, and topical space. I followed Josh since he was a Cranes New York 30 under 30 in about 2002. He would have been very young because he had that, he had the biotech report with Forbes. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, I think that's just cruel though. I think Josh is well over 30 inches tall. Um, <laughs> Oh. But um, 
Uh, it's possible he's under 30. I, I don't think so, though. I think he's over 30. Um, you said that. <laughs> oh, come on. Josh knows I'm teasing. Um, he's a great friend. And I, 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 those interviews with Josh are, are literally what having dinner with Josh and I is like. It's just we just go back and forth talking about various obtuse uh, topics. Yeah, it's inspirational stuff. I certainly like listening to them. Um, so your background, it's interesting. Your background is in valuation and in equities, small cap equities and value. But um, when we, we, we met, I chatted about six months ago, uh, it was just after the XIV, the VIX, inverse VIX ETN had blown up pretty spectacularly and you guys uh, traded that. Can you just talk a little bit about what you saw and um, how you how you positioned yourself in that? Um, so it's a little bit longer than the go than, than that. Now we're dating ourselves. The market has, has, uh, been so boring in so many respects that, that, that time has flown, but that was actually February of 2018 that the XIV blew up. So, so, right. Um, and it was probably soon after that, that you and I first started talking about it. Um, uh, you know, there's some limitations when I was working for Peter in terms of the compliance dynamic. Um, so XIV is really interesting. There was a, there's been a number of articles that were written about uh, that and um, the involvement from uh, from from uh, Peter's uh, capital. Um, it was one of those interesting experiences, a little bit like uh, Men in Black, where if you want the best story, you go to Zero Hedge uh, or the tabloids as compared to the official and news the uh, reporting. Yeah. Um, and so for all those that hate on Zero Hedge, I will tell you that that was by far the most accurate reporting. They actually managed to capture an audio recording of me getting into an argument at a conference um, <laughs> with the founder of XIV, a guy by the name of Nick Cherney uh, of Velocity Shares, um, in which you know I had presented some of my analysis and, and suggested – uh, that there was extraordinary risk in a product like XIV that it could go to zero on as little as a 4% decline in the S&P. Um, hold for one second. I just have some things popping up. Um, and, um, you know, his contention was that they had back-tested this, that it had it would survive the crash of 87. And, of course, on February 5th, 2018, it, it went to zero on a 3.9% decline in the S&P. So I'll, I'll take that as a win. Um, we were fortunate in realizing how to trade this. There was a companion product or identical product to XIV um, called SVXY that was offered by ProShares. What was unique about it was that it actually had options struck against this product. And so um, when we looked at the options, what we realized was that the pricing or the distribution that was embedded in the pricing of the options uh, modeled effectively a Black-Scholes type distribution. Right. And so just to explain that very quickly, a Black-Scholes uh, distribution or a log normal distribution assumes that something similar to the current price is the most likely price, adjusting for the pattern of interest rates and dividends that can be paid, um, and that the forward price against which, which you're struck can only differ by those amounts. And then the distribution of outcomes is is basically decreasing probability away from that, Right. The unique feature about XIV and SVXY was because they were inverse products, they behaved minus 100% effectively uh, to the VIX or more accurately to a product called VXX. Um, and their, um, so, so as they were going up in price, the underlying was actually declining in price. And what that meant was that the, the point move that was required in the VIX to cause it to double 
and leading to 100% loss in XIV or SVXY was actually becoming easier and easier to achieve. It was smaller and smaller because it was right. so, so, right, because it was so low. So as the VIX fell in price, right, it would only, if it got to nine, for example, right. in 2017 and early 2018, it would only require a nine point increase for it to double and thereby cause the inverse product to go to zero, right? Um, it was a little bit worse than that for XIV in particular because they had an 85% force majeure clause. If it declined by 85% in a single day, Credit Suisse, who was the sponsor, said, we're going to shut it off, right? Um, and so it like became actually shockingly easy. It's very frequent in history to get roughly a six-point increase in the VIX, right? That's how I was actually pulling out a significant fraction of the analysis that said 4%, you know, 4% sort of decline in the S&P could lead to that. The second thing that was happening was that these products had become so large that the ability to hedge them in the UX futures, which is CBOE's VIX contract, had outstripped the capacity of that market. And on any given day, these products alone accounted for about two-thirds of the behavior or the activity that was right. occurring in the, in the UX futures. Um, on a spike like we saw, Right. There was zero capacity for the futures market to absorb this. And so, in fact, the market makers had begun using the S&P itself to hedge their exposure, presuming that um, the negative correlation with volatility was going to remain perfectly intact. Right. And so this actually exhibited itself. If you run the behavior of um, uh, XIV or SVXY or even the UX futures relative to the S&P, the beta became unstable and began to increase. Right. And so um, you would see more and more percentage point and point moves in the UX relative to the movements in the S&P 500. Right. The beta that the product was launched at and planned for was about four. Right. So an expectation that the move in the in the first UX future would be about 400 percent of what the move was in the S&P. And by the time this product blew up, that beta had risen to 22. Right. Right, so the UX futures were moving 22, per, 22 times as much as the S&P itself. Hence, a 4% decline in the S&P causes an 88% right. decline in XIV and knocks it out. And um, the options market didn't price this at all. There were long-dated leap puts that were available on SVXY. Uh, we managed to buy them phenomenally cheaply. I was uh, careful to inform my counterparties after we had our position in, so... You know, tell them, do not hold this risk. I know you want to, but I prefer not to see my friends lose their jobs. Um, and lo and behold, on February 5th, it, it, the product basically went to zero. Um, yeah. We had kind of figured out that the probability of it going to zero over the two-year time horizon that we held the options um, was about 95%. Wow. Um, so that was a pretty, pretty good trade from that standpoint. Um, we're limited somewhat in terms of the size that we could achieve. We managed to get decent size. Um, but... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the options market didn't price that in any way. And, and one of the ironies of course, is that we bought two year leap puts that had over a year left to expiry <laughs> when the product went to zero. So I, I uh, was too conservative in my construction of the trade. Wow. Yeah. That's a great trade. That's fascinating to hear that from the inside. So let's, let's talk about your passive thesis. So, um, I don't want to foreshadow it too much, but basically the, uh, there are these, ongoing flows to passive that you say at some point there's a tipping point and we may have already reached that tipping point but perhaps it's better if you if you explain it yeah so i, I mean i think the, the core of the observation with passive what we absolutely know about passive is that it doesn't meet its own definition 
Right. So if you go back and you read Bill Sharp's The Arithmetic of Active Management, which, of course, passive managers will trot out uh, in, a, in a very enthusiastic fashion to say, see, it's self-evident why passive outperforms. It's all a function of the fees. The definition of passive investing is that you hold securities. You hold all the securities. If you transact, and this is explicitly stated, if you transact in any way, then you are no longer a passive player. Right? You have to, by definition, influence the market if you transact. So the idea that passive players are passive players is just completely absurd. What they are is active players that have super, super simple rules and a massive regulatory advantage. Right? And so you have to start with that recognition. And the minute you do that, then you recognize that you should be looking for you know, why you aren't seeing the influence of this as compared to searching for the influence of it. So and just to be clear, you're not saying that, that, that passive is... So the S&P 500 is famously constructed by a committee. It's not, it's not just buying the largest float-adjusted companies. It's, that's, that's not your argument, though. You're saying it, it's not passive because they have to trade. Correct. Okay. So, I mean, the, the theory behind passive has its own challenges, right? Which is the idea that the market has to be complete, right? The markets are clearly not complete. As you point out, the construction of the S&P 500 itself is not actually an observation of all of the available securities and all of the available potential investments that are available to the private sector, right? Which is what would be required in terms of the construction of a truly passive index. It's presumed that it is a subset and that it becomes somewhat self-limiting, right? Um, that has its own problems, which is what most people tend to focus on. I'm actually saying something very different, which is that the actual participants themselves are what's driving the phenomenon that we're seeing. They're just another form of quantitative investor that operates under a tremendous regulatory advantage. What's the regulatory advantage that they have? Well, the simplest one is is with the introduction of, of uh, what are called qualified default investment alternatives in 401ks and to a lesser extent IRA plans um, and the focus in the DOL fiduciary rule in the United States on uh, the need to provide for companies that are offering 401k plans to provide low cost passive index choices. This was accomplished because of lobbying by Vanguard and others with that type of framework. There's no alternative for many to invest in terms of their their uh, biweekly paychecks, right? And so the money goes into the market and it automatically is defaulting into these vehicles. That's just a massive regulatory advantage. And it's driven a phenomenon that is much more demographic in nature than people really understand. So passive penetration in aggregate is closing in on about 40% of the total market cap. Of managed assets, it's now greater than 50%. And I just distinguish between those two to, to be clear that some of the phenomenon, it matters more um, what assets are traded than the assets that are actually invested in terms of total market cap. Um, you know, that split, though, is not uniform across demographics. So millennials are almost 95% passive. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's absolutely insane. And boomers are only about 20% passive. And is that, that brings – Is that because of the markets that they've seen? For, for the last decade, it's been the best performing asset in the world is probably the S&P 500. On a risk-adjusted basis, it's probably the NASDAQ. But yeah, the, o overall, I would say yes, it's something like the S&P 500. And boomers have seen different markets where value has worked I and – I, I, I think you're assigning too much thought to it. Okay. I, I actually think it is literally as simple as the vast majority of the investments that millennials have in markets are a function of the withholding that is done in their 401k. Okay. 
and the increased prevalence of things like employment matching as we've entered in an, uh, an increasingly uh, tight labor market and benefits begin to be offered both because of, of a tax dynamic that was introduced, I want to say it was in 2005, um, and then enhanced with the SECURE Act that passed in December of 2019, that makes it very important and much more advantageous for employers to pay their pay a portion of the savings that go into the 401ks, right? So this is the classic 401k match. Um, we've expanded all of those programs. And so for the vast majority of millennials, their only exposure to the market we, we make a lot of hype about things like Robinhood and stuff, but the actual assets in those are tiny. Um, the vast majority of the money that they're getting is actually just going into things like Vanguard target date funds. Right, okay. So the flows, why is it a problem that the flows seem to go to the largest, most liquid companies? Why, why does that create an issue? Well, the issue that is created is, is again, because we presume... Like we could discard the idea that the markets are efficient allocators of capital, right? Um, and and if that's if you're willing to do that, then it's quote unquote not a problem, right? But what we're actually doing is is we're sending all the money to vehicles that allocate the capital on the basis of the current market cap or the current float adjusted market right. cap, right? When you do that, one you're presuming that the market has actually done the work to say that that current level of price is the right price. And the second is, is that you're actually concluding that the price that it transacts at next is the price that it would have transacted at next had you not been involved, right? And that's kind of one of these weird things. Like prices are a little bit like Schrodinger's cat. They tell you where something was on the last transaction, but they don't actually tell you what the price is, right? The price could be up, it could be down. We don't know that until the next transaction occurs. And passive is assuming that they're not having any influence on that next price, but they have to be because they are transacting. But aren't these companies the ones that are most – so that the, by, by virtue of the fact that they are the largest float-adjusted – the largest float-adjusted companies receive the bulk of the – receive more than their fair share of the flows. And even just, just putting aside the question of valuation at the moment, because any – you know. It, any other measure that we could look at, if we looked at equal weight, that's sort of a proxy for value in the sense that just getting away from market capitalization weighting means that you're getting closer to value or you could look at some sort of uh, pr price ratio as a question of value. So just putting aside value, the price relative to the fundamentals completely, just in terms of which companies are able to absorb the most amounts of capital, wouldn't you expect it to be those that have the largest float adjusted market capitalization? Well, so that's that's part of the challenge, right? Is is when you first of all, you made a couple of assumptions there, right? So equal weight does not actually have to be equated to value. You could have a scenario in which you have relative a, to market this. cap is all I'm saying. It's just yeah, that's not actually true though, right? Because you could actually have a good example of this was in China in in June of 2015, where you had a couple of large SOEs that traded at low PEs, okay, and many many companies in the Chinese stock market that traded at very high PEs but represented very low market cap. So the actual equal weighted was far more growth or momentum oriented okay. than the than the market cap was, right? So there is no that that idea equal weight versus market cap weight tends to behave in that fashion. But there's actually no requirement that it behaves in, in the fashion that you're describing. The second dynamic that you mentioned is this idea of absorbing capital, right? And the only way that, it, that capital gets absorbed is through a transaction in which somebody is willing to sell their shares in exchange for cash, 
If I want to buy shares, I have to deploy my cash and find somebody who's willing to sell to me. One of the challenges that gets created as passive becomes a larger and larger share is because there is no discretion, there is no consideration of should the incremental dollar go in in the exact same fashion, right? That passive player has no instruction to sell. And so you exhibit increased inelasticity in terms of each incremental dollar that goes in. Imagine a scenario in which 100% of the owners of a company were passive and you tried to buy a share. There is no price at which they would be willing to sell to you unless they received an instruction from their end investors saying to sell shares to you. Right? And so prices could theoretically become infinite on that type of dynamic. Eventually, you would expect somebody to respond by saying, all right, I will sell an additional share to you. Traditionally, that's been accomplished by price-sensitive or return-sensitive discretionary managers who say, okay, this price is unwarranted by the fundamentals, therefore I'm willing to sell some of these shares to this person who's expressing, in my view, an irrational demand for these shares. If that demand is so strong and it gets absolutely extreme, people can synthetically create shares by shorting, right? But that is incredibly dangerous to do in an environment in which stocks are exhibiting this reduced elasticity, right? They have the potential, as we just saw with Tesla, to explode to the top side, turning those who have synthetically manufactured shares, which is what a short seller is, right? Turning them into forced buyers and increasing the demand for the shares at exactly the wrong time. Is that is that what you is that what you interpret the price action in Tesla to be? The way I interpret the price action in Tesla is, is that there were two large discretionary players, T. Rowe Price and Fidelity, that were selling shares on a somewhat continuous basis over the period of 2018 to 2019. Underneath that, you had continuous buying that was coming from the passive players, BlackRock, Vanguard, etc. And then you had a whole bunch of players who exhibit high inelasticity in their price. Kathy Wood at ARK Investment, for example, who responds to the dramatic increase in price, not by saying, hey, I was right, She's and taking money off price the table. Target. But by raising her price target, right? So which all, all she's communicating to you is effectively she has a perfectly inelastic response function. The higher it goes in price, the more she's going to tell you it's validating her price targets, which now need to be increased because the market clearly can't incorporate it. Um, and so that type of dynamic is largely what happened to Tesla. Once you'd exhausted the discretionary selling from Fidelity and T. Rowe, you then had a continuous buying that was happening under the surface from BlackRock and Vanguard and, and a few other players. Um, that changed the demand function and prices began to explode for the shorts, right? Causing the shorts to co to be forced to cover. When you say they're synthetically creating a share, are you saying that, that uh, does that require naked shorting? Because don't in, in most instances, you need to borrow the short before you can sell it. How is that creating? Well, when you're borrowing it, you're not actually getting somebody to sell, right? You've right, entered into okay. a forward contract in which you're going to return those shares at a point in time. So you are absolutely synthetically increasing the shares that are available, right? Now, that is another area where passive has dramatically influenced the market, right? Because the way that a short seller would have traditionally received a signal that shares were in short supply is through an increase in the cost of, of loaning or cost right. of borrowing those shares, right? The security lending dynamics. Security lending dynamics, in turn, are influenced by passive because the largest players, Vanguard and BlackRock, have actually become dramatically aggressive uh, share lenders, right? The way right. they pay for a zero cost or a three basis point ETF or a mutual fund um, is by lending those shares out. And that's one of the advantages that ETFs have is, is that they can actually specifically lend out those shares and take on leverage up to about 30 percent. 
Um, they don't have anywhere near that type of leverage. I'm not trying to scare people from that dynamic. But when you have a single large lender of shares, almost nothing goes special anymore, right? Because so many shares are available from BlackRock or Vanguard who are not trying to optimize the lending rates like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley used to do in their prime brokerage units, that the cost of lending has collapsed. You see this, read the 10K on, on BlackRock. They'll tell you that the returns associated with security lending have fallen dramatically. This has led to underperformance in terms of their fundamentals. Um, and now you're seeing them try to change that through the introduction of things like ESG, right? They're trying to create a reason why they can increase the cost of their funds. It's a backing off of the ETF price war. So the, the price section that you'd expect to see with these ongoing passive flows is just a, a gradual melt-up. And then, but what, is, is that fair? Well, and it's an exponential melt-up, right? Because as fewer and fewer shares are held by those with discretionary capability to either lend them out or to sell them, right, in response to a higher price, as there's less and less discretionary shares available, basically prices need to move in a more aggressive fashion, right? The, that's what I'm referring to. The, the economic term is inelasticity, right? So there's no longer a substantive increase in supply on an increase in price. Perversely, actually, each incremental dollar that goes into the market tries to buy more of something that's actually risen in price because of the market cap weighted phenomenon, which is part of the reason you have this dramatic rise in the momentum factor, which captures that dynamic versus the value factor, which tries to fade that dynamic. So the, 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 at some point, you say that this, this unwinds and you've, you've modeled that. So I, I, I think, um, so the quick answer is yes, it unwinds, right? The way that it unwinds is challenging to determine, in part because of that demographic feature, right? So we have such incredible passive share gain that's simply occurring because of the aging of the population, right? So the millennials are 95%. There's almost nothing that's going to get them below that, right? And, um, you know, or at least not substantively below that. The boomers are rolling off the stage at 20%, and so they're selling their shares to the extent that they're selling their shares and reinvesting them in the market. If you're taking it from a 401k or an IRA, which is a tax-advantaged vehicle that is tax-deferred, right? Um, you, when you roll it back into the market, you want to put it into a tax-advantaged a tax-advantaged vehicle, right? In a taxable component, which is typically an ETF. ETFs are much more tax-efficient than mutual funds are, right? And so there's this natural process where the market is just firing the active managers simply because that's what the old people own. And the money that is then reinvested is disproportionately being reinvested into passive, while as all new money is coming into passive as well. All right. So it's very difficult to see where this reverses itself. Where it unquestionably reverses itself is on two fronts. One, valuations rise high enough, or the value of the securities rise high enough, that the dynamics of how capital goes into the market versus how capital comes out of the market become important. Almost all institutions, 401ks, IRAs, are forced to take a percentage withdrawal, right? And so that scales up with security prices and the value of securities. Money that's going in only scales with income. So as the, the price of the market or the value of the market rises relative to national income, this is the classic kind of market cap versus national income that Warren Buffett and others have referred to, the ability for inflows to match the outflows becomes increasingly constrained. And so at some point, the outflows will overwhelm the inflows. 
The second way it happens is, is that there is a structural increase in outflows relative to inflows. And I think you're seeing a component of that with just the natural growth of the baby boom cohort and their need to start to take funds out of their retirement accounts and put it into their bellies. The, my impression is that the baby boomers hold vastly more assets than any other cohort beneath them, including any other cohort beneath them at, when the baby boomers were at the same age. So that must be, I guess there are, that's right, there are two drivers. There's the, the, the just the sheer fact of the market cap being so, the total market capitalization being so divorced from the underlying GNP or whatever metric you choose. And then there's yeah, also, national income, yeah. And then there's also the, but the, the baby boomers must be getting very close to being selling down now. So we've started to see this. So in December 2018, we actually, and, and actually that's not just isolated to December 2018, but um, we saw it in 17, 18, 19. Um, we'll see it again in 20. That's the year-end um, selling. That that's that's the year-end stuff. And so we actually saw this even last year where we saw a rally versus the big sell-off that we saw in 2018. You know, we saw a significant step up in mutual fund redemptions in the fourth quarter of 2018. Um, and there's a very clear pattern. I, I, I sent you a couple of charts, which um, we, we can discuss as we go through this, but I didn't include this one. But there is a very clear step up that occurred in selling. Um, and that's only going to grow, right? Because the, the rules, at least as they were originally constructed, is that you would put money into a 401k and IRA. You were theoretically contributing it while you were working and experiencing a high tax rate. Um, as you hit retirement age and you begin taking those distributions ostensibly or withdrawing it into a lower tax rate regime because you're making less money. And so this is supposed this is part of the tax advantaged component of it. There's also a value, of course, with the ability to compound on a pre-tax basis. Um, the rules is constructed are that once you turn 70.5, you have to start taking distributions. The baby boomers are the first generation that um, had 401ks and IRAs as their primary mode of retirement vehicles. The generations that came before them had defined benefit plans. So defend, defined contribution became really important following 1972, the adoption of IRAs, and then in 1978, the introduction of 401ks. And so the history of those two products is basically a history of the baby boomers. Right. Right. Um, the very first baby boomers were born in 1946. The year they turned 70 is, of course, 2016. Um, the year they turned 70.5 is is 2017. And so the year after that is actually when they had to first start selling. That, in my estimation, is what happened in 2018. is that we saw a large supply that occurred in the fourth quarter of 2018. So is there any policy prescription to, to fix this, or more importantly, is there any way to take advantage of the distortion that it creates from a trade perspective? So I think there's a couple of things that are interesting. I mean, there, I have yet to find, um, there's elements of market timing, like you could try to uh, change your positioning based on your expectation for flows. Of course, it's a dynamic system. And so after 2018, there was an increased recognition that selling strictly at the end of the year um, had adverse consequences. A lot of people stuck around 2018 hoping for a big Santa Claus rally, and as that failed to materialize, there was a need to take a tremendous amount of money out. 28, December 2018 had the largest withdrawals in history from the U.S. equity markets, about three and a half times the level of what we saw in the Lehman events. Um, I think that's going to be difficult to replicate, uh, at least in the same sort of dramatic fashion, because people have become more aware of the need right. to take 
continuous distributions as compared to wait in the market till the end of the year. We'll see how much damage was created in 2019 um, by the by the performance. Um, you know, but uh, but but I would expect the dynamic system to begin to respond to that. And so that makes it difficult. Um, eventually, those numbers start to become large enough that they they become overwhelming. And that's where the second component has occurred. The SECURE Act that passed in, in Congress in December 2019 and was signed by Donald Trump um, is a fascinating insight in terms of kind of the regulatory dynamics of, of what has occurred. So the SECURE Act was initially introduced by a Republican congressman um, with the idea being that it would be an offset to the the Trump tax cuts, right? So we were we were behaving fiscally irresponsibly. It was proposed with the initial implementation of the SECURE Act that you would eliminate the tax deductibility of 401ks above a certain level, right? Once Vanguard and BlackRock lobbyists got their hands on this legislation, it morphed into an extension of the tax deductibility of 401ks and IRAs, right? Pushing the retirement date of withdrawal from 70.5 to 72 and expanding the tax benefits associated with employers offering 401k plans to their employees, right? So, you know, no good deed goes unpunished in, in this type of dynamic. We actually have short-term reduced the impact of the aging of the baby boomers but on a longer term basis, we've actually just accelerated those outflows that are going to happen post 2022. And uh, in terms of in terms of trading, it's because it, it creates a distortion. So is there any way to sort of take advantage of it? And perhaps from the perspective of a value investor, you don't think so. Let's just sorry, answer that question first, then I'll, I'll circle back to the next one. Well, I, I think the biggest challenge that you have from a value investor standpoint, right, is, is that you are. Um, inherently associating yourself with people that are being fired, right? Um, and that's not a good look, right? It doesn't do well in a nightclub. It also doesn't do well in the markets. Yeah, you have to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if the baby boomers are only 20% passive, then they're 80% active, right? And active managers naturally gravitate to value because one, it sounds more intelligent, and two, because what sort of value are you going to add relative to a market cap weighted or a float weighted index if you're basically doing the exact same thing that the underlying market is, right? Um, and so everybody wants to sound intelligent, particularly those of us that grew up and, you know, we're part of the AV squad and not necessarily part of the football team. Um, you know, so you, you all you have is intelligence, right? I have to sound more intelligent in this process. Um, otherwise, my wife would have no interest in me. But the, um, the, the problem is, is that those are the people that are getting fired, right? The baby boomers are taking the money out and giving it to ETFs, cap-weighted ETFs, right? And so inherently, you are investing alongside people showing a similar approach and methodology to people who are getting fired, right? And that means there's going to be increased pressure on your securities relative to those that are being bought by the passive indices. I mean, that certainly seems to have been the case that that's evident in the market. I just wonder if there's some, but you know, the, the, Aside from aside from the benefits of appearing intelligent, there's also historically some outperformance to holding value securities, which is probably the reason that attracts me most to it, rather than uh, the 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 simple fact of looking a little bit intelligent. There's some price at which, so in 2000, there's a there's a bifurcated market. There's an extremely expensive portion of the market, and then there's undervalued stocks. I don't care so much about the market performance of those stocks if I can see that the underlying fundamentals are improving because that that will be recognized at some stage what what why is that not being why does that not appear now 
And why is that well, not I, valid? I, 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 would, I would say two very simple things, right? So one, um, uh, the historical returns associated with the value factor are a very different statement than I think the companies that I'm buying represent value, right? So most well, evidence factor. Ignore price. Well, so, 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 so the factor is forget price to book or any other factor, right? But the 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 really critical insight is is that when you look at those historical results and those historical dynamics, a huge portion of what you're actually capturing is portfolio construction techniques. Give me one second. I apologize. Sorry, my dogs insisted on being let out. Um, they, they are, are far less tolerant than you are of my ramblings. Um, the, you know, so, so the historic factor that we're looking at is largely a construction technique. And I would argue that it's very similar to the selling of volatility because the construction of, right. a, of a systematic value strategy is basically saying if something falls in price, right, i.e. book value is relatively stable, so price falls, right? right? If something falls in price relative to the universe, then I am going to buy it. If something rises in price relative to the universe, then I'm going to sell it. Well, then all I've done is I've shorted a put and I've shorted a call. I should receive compensation for being short those two option-like instruments. Right? That is, by and large, what the value factor, quote-unquote, is. Um, there is obviously you know, the Ben Graham approach of buying really cheap stocks, et cetera. But most of that, unfortunately, it, you, know, you have to very heavily adjust it for the risk components in order to get uh, an accurate picture of it, most of the evidence suggests that it's the opposite, that there's just a very few stocks that have lottery-like characteristics that have done extraordinarily well over time. We've seen a lot of this evidence, and so the momentum factor tends to be actually dominant over long periods of time unless you are constructing a portfolio in which you're inherently short volatility, which gives you an additional return factor. Um, so that would be part of my pushback on does value ever need to recover, and the answer is, is probably not. Um, the second component though, is what actually differs between today and 2000. And what happened in 2000 was because the market construction was actually improper because the indices were market cap weighted in an environment in which there were a number of companies that had low floats, right? So Microsoft, Cisco, Dell had relatively low floats, what we used to call high levels of insider ownership. It meant that when the indices were trying to buy in proportion to market cap, they were actually buying twice as many shares of Microsoft as were available, causing Microsoft to dramatically outperform, right? And so there was no real rebalancing pressure on this dynamic because of the way we used to do rebalancing. You used to give a manager three years and you would never take money away from them if they were outperforming. You'd never take money away from them if they were underperforming. And then every three years you'd decide if you were going to continue with them or you were going to fire them. And so portfolios were able to get much more out of balance in that time period. And so what we saw eventually was, was as people decided to allocate money to um, technology funds and other players, money was being stripped from value without any uh, real source of increase. <laughs> Excuse me. And so you had absolutely cheap companies with fantastic economic prospects, home builders, right before, you know, the biggest home building bubble of all time, we're trading at less than half of book value, significantly discounted multiples, et cetera. Um, today, that's just not the case, right? If I look at the value stocks, the multiples are actually quite high. You're not buying things cheaply. You're buying them cheap relative to the growth stocks. If I look at it on a simple metric, 
But that's just another way of saying that, you know, if I have a stock that's trading at 10 times PE and another stock that's trading at 20 times PE and they both go up 10%, right? Well, the spread was 10 PE points before, right? If I go to 22 and 11, now the spread is 11 points, right? Has the value stock gotten cheaper in that scenario? No, it's gotten more expensive. Right. And I think the deciles have got cheaper though. No. If you look at the data, the deciles have not gotten cheaper. The deciles have gotten more expensive. I think that I think that we're talking about different time periods. I think that the the cheap decile is probably rich to its long run mean, but it's definitely fallen over the last twelve to eighteen months. I can't speak over the last twelve to eighteen months. I have to confess that I don't have that data sitting in front of me. I know that the um, cheap decile is expensive relative to its history, as you were alluding to. I wouldn't say it's very expensive, though. I think it's probably a little bit rich to its mean, but I'll concede the point. I just, I just wonder if um, at some stage the, the distortion becomes so great that aren't you paid as a private equity firm or an activist to sort of go after these companies and, and whack them until the, the candy falls out? Well, it, I guess it just depends on what you mean by that, right? So, I mean, one, you're presuming the value ultimately as a driver, but let's just extend the scenario that we were just talking about, right? So let's continue that process. Instead of going up 10%, they all go up 500% with no change in fundamentals. And so the stock that was at 20 is now trading at 100 times. The stock that was at 10 is now trading at 50 times. What's the incentive for the PE firm? This is assuming that it's gone up 500%. So that's the question. Does it go down? And when it goes down, is that actually, then you introduce an entirely different factor, right? Which is what happens if the market corrects? Does George Soros's reflexivity of a crash in the market reduce the capacity to spend from the household sector and in turn drive an economic recession, which is going to adversely affect that cheaper stock in terms of its fundamentals almost more, almost definitely more severely, particularly because those companies tend to carry significant quantities of leverage. And that leverage has been, never been so cheap in an attempt to keep up with their friends and, and neighbors, the CEOs from, from successful growth companies. Many of these companies have dramatically deteriorated their balance sheets. There's still some very good balance sheets out there, particularly, I mean, you, can, you don't have to buy pure value. You can buy a value quality, some sort of mix of that and get, there are some very healthy, cheap companies, good balance sheets, flowing cash flows, buying back stock. They look pretty interesting to me as a plain old value investor. It, it, it's, it's possible. I mean, that, that is certainly, um, that is an eventual outcome that could occur. Eventually, these names will suffer from a degree of neglect that may make them very attractive. I guess my, my pushback is who else is going to buy them, right? So will the PE companies buy them? Possibly, but I think they would have to get to levels of absolute cheapness that I certainly am not seeing yet. One of the phenomena that I have seen, one of the phenomena that I have seen recently, um, I, left, I, my, I was lamenting the performance of value on on Twitter and you commented underneath something like value guys need to evolve. And there are a lot of value guys who follow me who are discretionary, who, who follow that Buffett model of, um, you know, looking for high growth in earnings. And so they're, th those guys have been doing quite well in this market where they're looking for compound type growth and trying to buy that future growth at a, at a price that is cheap today relative to where it could get in the future. So they've been performing fairly well. And I think that when I look at the best performing stocks in the market, many of these have been companies that 
I think I think that the market is doing a pretty good job of sorting at the moment. The ones that are performing very well tend to be, you know, companies that are growing very rapidly with lots of free cash flow, doing the right things. Microsoft uh, being one of them. Those sort of companies. Uh, you don't think that that's evidence that the market, at some level, perhaps ignoring the ones the ones that are at the the, the darlings of the S and P five hundred. You don't think that it's functioning at that lower level. So I think that that is. I think that it is functioning somewhat on a relative basis, but I don't think it's functioning on an absolute basis. And so to be clear, the phenomenon that I'm highlighting is an inflationary phenomenon, and I use that word carefully, um, where financial assets broadly are being increased in their valuations as a function of this passive dynamic. Within the markets themselves, there is an element of a, of a relative sorting that remains efficient because there are actually discretionary managers trading. And so on the margin, they will sell something and on the margin, they will buy something. And that is influencing the relative behavior. But the absolute prices at which those are occurring are all being lifted by the passive phenomenon. How do you distinguish a market like this from any other bull market where passive tends to be most... Um, uh, calm right before the, the the market blows up. People get most relaxed as the market, just by virtue of the fact that it's gone up for so long. So I think that's one of the challenges. And and in the charts that I sent you, I mean, one of the the strange phenomenon is is that a market that is um, benefiting from a growth of a strategy like passive that reinforces momentum components and de-emphasizes the dynamics of valuation because um, there is no consideration in a passive allocation strategy to what is my forward expected return, right? I just put the money in because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to buy every two weeks. I'm not supposed to time the market, et cetera. Um, you know, that type of phenomenon has just honestly never existed before. And so, you know, saying how does it compare to prior periods I think that's part of the challenge is is that, you know, as this phenomenon grows, it doesn't look so crazily different from what we've experienced before, which is just another way of saying that as prices go higher, right, people tend, you know, the Bitcoin phenomenon, people tend to decide that there's something really special about what they own and they are less willing to sell it. That's just another way of saying reduced elasticity, right? An increase in elasticity means that prices can begin to rise in an exponential fashion. The difference this time is, is that we are seeing, we're, we're just now, right, 10 years into this bull market, or 11 years, I guess, actually, we're just now beginning to see some of the signs of people saying, oh my God, what is actually going on, right? This feels completely crazy. The economy is very clearly slowing. Profit growth is very clearly slowing across on an, on an aggregate basis. We're facing extraordinary outcomes like the coronavirus, right, that theoretically is slowing things even more than they had already begun to slow. And yet prices seem completely disconnected. And so I think you're finally starting to see people start to question that. But, you know, you saw this phenomenon in, 2017, in uh, 2007, right, where the argument was valuations are not rich. The market is cheap. And then we were all shocked to discover it could fall of 50%. I mean, Buffett was among the people saying that at the time, too. Well, I mean, if you go back and you look at Buffett's, you know, um, lauded article in December of 1999, right, where he basically, I forget the title of the article, but it was, you know, effectively a love song to uh, the, the, the value investing frameworks of, you know, um, you know, you can't possibly generate the returns 
on a look-forward basis that we've delivered historically. And he right. pointed to things like corporate profits as a percentage of GDP and suggested that that was mean reverting. And at 6.5% in 1999, it was near the historical peaks, right? Um, and therefore, it was likely to retreat. And so profit growth wasn't going to be high. And then multiples were extremely high and all that sort of stuff. And literally every single part of that forecast was wrong. <laughs> Right? I mean, every single part of it was wrong, except for the observation that from the period of 2000 through 2003, we experienced a bear market, right? Corporate profit margins are now double, right? In aggregate, corporate profits as a percentage of GDP have expanded dramatically. Multiples are even higher. And the returns associated with the market from 1999, crazily enough, weren't anywhere near as bad as anybody would have thought. Right, what was supposed to be the greatest you know, bull market in history, the greatest bubble in history, far greater than 1929, was eclipsed in a framework that made 1929 to 1949, you know, the last cycle, look a million times worse. Right? This was nothing. So what happens? Is, does it become possible for a crash in your framework? Does a crash, a near-term crash, invalidate the thesis? Or do you think that whatever happens, if we have a crash, this the, 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 in, the two weekly investing keeps on going through the other side and the problem doesn't necessarily go away? So I, I think part of the irony is that, you know, so this is clearly not the only factor. There have also been, um, you know, there have been policy changes where the focus of central banks has shifted towards asset price support, in part recognition of the fact that if asset prices were to fall, you would likely to see a, a significant decline in consumption that would show up as a very bad recession and, and reinforce many of the deflationary characteristics that we've had to deal with for the past, you know, uh, decade or so. Um, so central banks have changed their policy basically post-1998 away from targeting inflation and towards targeting financial asset price support. Very difficult to predict how that will play out, right? Um, but there is a limit, and I think there's reasons why those policies have been successful to this point that are not what the central banks think they are, um, but those are likely to reverse themselves at some point. The, the, um, the issue that you have with central bank policy is, is that the way that they think it affects the markets is through the consumption function in terms of lowering interest rates theoretically pulls forward consumption from future periods right it's what's called the euler coefficient it's the relationship between consumption and interest rates and effectively by lowering the cost of borrowing you're pulling forward consumption unfortunately empirically the data works in the exact opposite direction right which is low interest rates actually retard consumption because people are trying to save money. Right. What it actually does is it increases the price of bonds. That expands the collateral that is available to borrow to buy financial assets and securities. And so you see an increase in the prices of financial assets on that policy. And that increase in price of financial assets then contributes to a modest increase in consumption, what's called the right. wealth effect, right? Um, and so the, the challenge that you have in this type of environment is if central banks cut interest rates, they think they're stimulating native consumption, they're actually just stimulating financial assets and a wealth effect. But because their model is saying the consumption should be going up, they're ignoring the wealth effect. Right. right. And so this is creating constraints this is why we can't raise interest rates, right? We're, we're setting up a situation in which the increase in interest rates reduces the available collateral, causes a decline in financial asset prices, and then the central banks are forced to go in the opposite direction. Um, you know, that I think is kind of the, the core driver of, of the central bank phenomenon that is very different than the way people think it works. And in turn, that's stimulated borrowing from the, the uh, corporate sector 
is they want to buy back their shares. They want to increase the pay packages for their CEOs who are ultimately, you know, benefiting from that in a disproportionate way. So Warren Buffett's 13F has come out recently. It shows him with $24 million in VOO and SPY to S&P 500 ETFs. Uh, he's got 0.01% of the portfolio in each, $24 million each, which is a tiny holding. Uh, how do you interpret that? So I, my guess is is that a component of it is just him um, trying it. Uh, that, would be, that would be my gut reaction is, is that this is probably Todd Combs or, or somebody else who's you know, just trying to, to experiment with can they place this sort of size. I'll, I'll tell you candidly, we tried similar dynamics and in institutional portfolios that I've been involved with just to experiment on it. Um, I, I had a Twitter exchange with somebody about this. Uh, I think it was Eric Balkunas of Bloomberg on this topic of, you know, what is Warren Buffett thinking when he's talking about the index funds? I don't know whether Warren Buffett has done this analysis and has figured out the index fund dynamic. I genuinely don't know um, if he knows more than he is letting on. I've been in trading situations with Warren in the past, and I will tell you he's really smart. Right? He's really, really smart, particularly in the way he structures his trades. So it's hard to read anything into a $50 million Buffett action. Um, but I think the more frightening aspect for me is, is, is that potentially Warren has figured this out and is behaving cynically. Um, and I w wouldn't put it past him. I, I, I don't, I think people tend to think of him as a, a soft and cuddly grandpa and he definitely is not that. Um, but it, it, you know, his, his participation there, I think should actually be a flag for people that, that, uh, this may not be over. It's absolutely fascinating. Just because we're almost running out of time and I want to get to Chuck Royce, let's uh, total non-secret. Uh, tell me a little bit about why Chuck Royce is such a phenomenal investor. Um, so Chuck is one of, uh, first of all, Chuck has just an incredible mind, right? And an incredible um, awareness of the embedded optionality in securities. And so his philosophy is it related to security selection at Royce was that he focused on small cap stocks, but he required that they have very low levels of leverage. And the reason why he did that, well, I don't think that he, I think he intuitively knew this, but I don't think he certainly was explicitly modeling it in the same way that I would be forced to do. Um, what he recognizes that they had option-like characteristics, right? Owning a portfolio that has small cap names in it is, is the greatest potential to exhibit that type of lottery-like winner um, capability. And he, he was, very agnostic between value and growth from that standpoint, always looking for that option-like characteristic. But his simple rules were that the company couldn't have enough leverage that would uh, lead to an abrogation or a shortening of that option duration. And so he was effectively trying to pick infinitely lived option-like assets, right? Um, and he just did it extraordinarily well. I mean, he, he had seen so many management teams and he'd seen so much in, you know, I met him in 2004. Uh, three for the first time and he had been running Penn Mutual Fund which was the core of, of the Royce universe uh, since he acquired it for $1 in 1974 right and uh, people forget like how bad things got there's maybe a little bit of this feeling in the active manager community today but he was able to buy Penn Mutual Fund for $1 because the owner had it had assets and it had a bit of a track record 
but the owner was un- incapable of paying director salaries, registration fees, etc. So he bought it for a dollar and then he proceeded to lose money for a period of time as he paid directors and others. But it turned into just an extraordinary vehicle on the back of, of, of his talent. My interpretation of Royce the firms, they seem to have a holding in every single stock that I look at. They've got a tiny little holding. So I think that's true. I think that that is, again, a reflection of, of Chuck's philosophy that each of the securities represents option-like characteristics. A typical portfolio at Royce would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 to 300 stocks. There would be multiple portfolios. Um, portfolios would typically be launched. We would typically launch a new fund at what we thought was the peak of a market, which sounds counterintuitive. counterintuitive. Until you realize that what that actually means is that you've launched a vehicle that has an excess of cash in an environment of high valuations. And so as the markets sell off, that cash creates actually an an outperformance characteristic so that when the next cycle emerges, not only did you have cash to deploy at more attractive valuations, but you benefited from the cash components. And and I mean, that type of insight, again, I, I highly doubt that Chuck modeled it, but he just knew it intuitively. Right. And that's that's part of what I refer to with my respect for Chuck. It's just like he, he, I think he's probably the single finest investor I've encountered. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, we're coming up on time. So if folks want to get in touch with you or to follow along on your Twitter handle, what's uh, what's your handle and how do they get in contact? Um, so I'm at Prof Plum 99 on Twitter. Um, and then uh, you can reach us through our website at Logica Funds, L-O-G-I-C-A Funds dot com, F-U-N-D-S dot com. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my partner, Wayne Himmelstein, who is also on Twitter um, and who I'm embarrassed to say I don't know his Twitter handle, but give me two seconds. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, perfect. Okay. There's, there's so, a great interview between Corey and Wayne. Uh, the quant philosopher is fascinating. Yeah, Wayne is Wayne is very much a philosopher. It's at Wayne Himmelstein, uh, W-A-Y-N-E, Himmelstein, H-I-M-E-L-S-E-I-N. Um, and he's also a fantastic uh, resource. Our website is logicafunds.com. You can find some of our writings there. Um, and and uh, as I mentioned early on, I shared some slides with you that, that uh, your listeners can take a look at. We're very happy to talk to anyone. Uh, Michael Green, thank you very much. Thank you, Tobias. I really enjoyed it.